the initial screen up there. Uh, I don't know why, but the Lord seems to give me these uh, minefields to walk through when I preach. Um, but, you know, you think about it, it's in the Word, you've got to preach it, even if it's kind of hard, right? Even if it's a difficult topic. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 14. We're going to spend a significant amount of time in this chapter here this morning. So Romans chapter 14, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 12. It's good to read the whole chapter if you get a chance, but this is what we're going to do today. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now this passage of scripture is a great example of the reality that the word of God is very practical and applicable. And it's not just about vegetarians. People sometimes speak of making the Word of God rele- relevant. Have you heard of I'm going to make the Word of God relevant. Nonsense. You don't make the Word of God relevant. It is always relevant for those who have ears to hear. In the context of this passage that we just read here this morning, the issue was dietary restrictions and the relative importance of the Sabbath or special feast days. For the most part, those things aren't big issues among believers in Christ these days, though we can certainly find examples of how even these things have become a matter of dispute and division among some. But it's not stretching a point at all to find many things in our current culture and even in churches that might be applicable as we look at the principles in this passage. About a year and a half ago, we addressed this issue in one of the 11 podcasts that we produced when we were unable because of government mandates to meet in person. Remember that? Remember those days? Think back with me to those podcast days of long ago. It was Mother's Day in May 2020. Audio. I'm Here's Rosalind Feathers. 
introducing her to the world. Thank you, everybody, for your prayers and concern. Mommy and baby are doing great. things scripture does not address. Scripture addresses what we need to know, but it doesn't address everything there is to know. Uh, scripture doesn't address coronavirus, for example. Uh, there's no mention of masks or the best way to curve, uh, to flatten the curve, or uh, it doesn't say anything about social distancing. Matter of fact, it says just the opposite, you know, we're supposed to be together. Um, it doesn't say anything about hand sanitizer. There's not a word about hand sanitizer, which is probably some hand washing in there. But there, there is a little hand washing, right? You're right. So, but it does address and it addresses often issues of relationships between believers, and from those things in Scripture, we can develop general principles that will guide us. And so, one of those places where we can find such principles that relates to the uh, situation that we're in today is in Romans 14. So I want to read just a handful of verses. Okay, so now here we are, almost a year and a half later, talking about and debating many of the same things. Will it ever end? A year ago last May, it was shutdowns, masks, and hand sanitizer. Today it's masks still. And add to that now debates about vaccines. We see these issues dividing our culture and even dividing churches. Last week I saw a survey that showed about one in seven Americans have actually ended friendships in the past year due to different perspectives on COVID, vaccines and related issues like masks. 16% of people had stopped three friendships since March of 2020. The survey found other reasons, of course, why friendships broke up, whether people were vaccinated or not. About 16% dropped friendships due to different political views. So the past few years, we've had COVID, we've had an incredibly contentious election, we've had racial unrest, and these things have caused our culture to be unusually divided. It's kind of like the perfect storm, isn't it? Three major and important issues combining to divide society. But Paul is telling us here in this passage in Romans, as he writes to the Roman Christians, the church should be different than the world. The church should look different than the world looks. This is true across the board with anything related to our faith. After all, Scripture tells us we are aliens and strangers. We're supposed to be different. But it's especially true in our relationships with fellow believers in Christ. So let me start this morning as we reconsider Romans 14 and what it has to say to us 
by saying that I think TCF has actually done really well in avoiding the trap of strife and division that these contentious issues have caused in so many places, including churches. I've read about churches that have split over COVID issues. However, this morning I hope to reinforce our relationships as we look at the Word and equip us to all think biblically and relationally, not just about the current issues, but maybe about other issues that might come along to divide us. Because after all, Romans 14 isn't talking about COVID. It's talking about division and how we relate to one another in Christ. Because as long as the church is full of sinners, and that's all of us, even sinners saved by God's grace, we will always have issues that can divide us, and the enemy will gleefully use these things to draw us away from each other when we really need each other the most. And I would say that I think we are in one of those seasons. We really need each other the most. So the enemy wants to mess that up, and he wants to use division to do it, to draw us away from one another. So think of also how that looks to a watching world when the church can't even love one another. I'm well aware that many in our midst have very strong opinions on both sides of these particular issues and many different issues that we could cite. Yet, thanks be to God, we have not let this divide us because as Paul wrote in verse 7 of our text this morning, Romans 14, 7 and 8, For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Another way Paul helps us see this is that our unity is in Christ. It's not in our perspectives about these disputable matters. We belong to him. He's our master, and we are his servants. We're together, not because we all think the same way about what Paul calls disputable matters, which can include many additional things, obviously, well beyond questions about COVID. But we're together because of our mutual union in Christ. We don't all think the same way about everything. But we all believe in salvation by grace through faith in the blood of Jesus, sacrificed for our sin, for our redemption, to reconcile us to God. We all believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We believe together in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father. We believe that through Him all things were made. We believe For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. Jesus became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. We believe that he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, that he suffered and was buried, and we believe that on the third day he rose again and that he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We believe that he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. We believe that his kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, lowercase c, Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sin. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. And remember that Paul is writing to Christians here in Rome. 
How we relate to the world may have some similarities, but that's a different subject that we're not going to address this morning. These are many of the core beliefs that bind us together in Christ. Not dietary restrictions. Not which holidays or holy days to celebrate or not to celebrate. Not whether or not alcohol is appropriate or inappropriate for believers in Christ. Not which translation of scripture you use. Not which view of the end times you might trust. We're his followers, his servants. And we believe these core beliefs even when we disagree about disputable matters. These core beliefs are the focal point and the foundation of our relationships. And this means that nothing that isn't clearly commanded or revealed in Scripture should divide us. We can love, we can respect, we can appreciate one another even when we disagree about these kinds of things. One version of uh, Romans 14.1 calls these things doubtful issues. Another calls them disputable matters. Another calls them opinions. Another translation says doubtful things. And the King James calls them doubtful disputations. I kind of like that one, doubtful disputations. But we get the idea. There are things that we see differently because in case you hadn't noticed, God made all of us differently. Different likes, different dislikes, different priorities, different personalities. But he wants us to be together because of our union in Christ. Paul even recognizes that there may even be a right or wrong view in some of these things because he characterizes one side of the dispute as the strong and another side as the weak, implying that maybe at some point the weak are going to grow into the strong and that might change their opinion on these disputable matters. And you say, well, okay, so... You know, if you, if you believe this on COVID, you're the strong. If you believe this, you're weak. No. We don't need to decide in every issue who's the strong and who's the weak because of the principles that Paul gives us in relating to our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we disagree about issues that are not core issues. That brings us another brief sidebar here, and I want to hit this early on. Paul's primary message here in this passage is that opinions should not divide us. But it's also clear when we look at the whole of Scripture, this is why when you uh, look at one passage of Scripture, it may make you think one thing, but you've got to know the whole Word of God. There are doctrinal issues over which we might divide, but there are things over which we must divide. There are issues on which we must take our stand, and, and these are core they are central to our faith. Several passages teach this truth, and we're going to look at just a few. In the same letter to Romans, just two chapters after Paul tells us in Romans 14, that we should welcome one another, we should not uh, despise differing views, not quarrel over opinions, don't pass judgment on the servant of another. And so two chapters later, he writes this to the same group of Roman Christians. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and, and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And he says, avoid them. Avoid them. I don't know about you, I think that sounds kind of divisive, doesn't it? Avoid them. Divide from them because they teach false doctrine. And then we see in writing to the Galatians in chapter 5, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Wow. That's some pretty strong words for the people that Scripture calls the Judaizers in Galatia. And they were the ones who taught the false doctrine. In this case, he was referring with those who added the work, the requirement of circumcision to the free and unearned gift of grace by which we are saved. Paul had this to say about them. I wish they would emasculate themselves. He's playing on words. It was about circumcision. He said, okay, just don't stop at circumcision. Keep cutting, right? That's pretty strong. That sounds pretty divisive to me. Paul says we need to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So at least some doctrine is worth dividing over. Let's not see Romans 14 as an admonition to never separate, to never divide, but let's look at this passage as a clear instruction to be very cautious over which issues you will divide. Of course, Christians sometimes even disagree on which issues are core issues. In other words, which are essential and which other issues may be important, but they're not the hill you're going to die on. You've heard that expression? So what we have to do is we have to rightly interpret the word of truth. That's where we know what are core issues and what are not. There is a right way and a wrong way, my brothers and sisters, to interpret Scripture. So you've heard the expression, the hill you're going to die on, right? That's a war-related phrase. And it basically means that you'll defend that hill, that piece of land, or in this case, that issue, to the death. You'll die for that issue. It's so vital, it's so important to you and your faith that you'll defend it even at the cost of your life. Now that's a metaphor for those of us here in the West, in the American church. But it wasn't for the martyrs of the early church. And today in many parts of the world, it's a reality too. It's not a metaphor for them. In Afghanistan, for example, that's not a metaphor. It's a real life choice. Deny your faith or die. I very much doubt that any Afghan believers would willingly die for their view on alcohol or the kinds of dietary restrictions that Paul wrote about here in Romans 14 or for their view on masking or the COVID vaccine. That's not the hill that they're going to die on. But for their faith in Christ, for their firm conviction that Jesus is who he says he is, the Word made flesh, who sacrificed himself for my sin, that's a hill to die on. And we have brothers and sisters around the world that do that, make that choice every single day. So again, for us in the West, we're just talking about opinions. We're talking about what we think about stuff. For them, it's a real choice. But perhaps looking at it this way will help us a little bit in determining whether a belief is a core belief or is it just a disputable matter. Is this the hill I want to die on? Would I give my life for this belief? So we want to be careful and not let our desire for unity and peace in the body of Christ to lead us to indifference about these core issues or leave us with no theological backbone at all. 
We also want to be just as discerning about those things that really are just peripheral to our faith. Not unimportant, but may might be peripheral. They may not even be really related to our faith in any significant way the more we think about it. The hill we're going to die on means it's an issue that's written in blood. Now, some other issues are written in ink. They're vitally important, but they're not written in blood. They're not worth dying for. And then there are those issues that are written in pencil. Those are issues I might believe, or I might even believe it strongly, but I might be persuaded to change my mind about, and it's certainly not worth dying for. Anything taught in the Word is important, right? But we must do triage. You know that word? Everybody know what triage means? It's used mostly in medical settings. My daughter Laura, when she worked in uh, St. Francis ER, she did some triage. If someone comes in with a broken leg, it's not that it's not important to treat them. They need to be treated. But there are layers and levels of urgency and importance. Someone coming in with a gunshot wound or a heart attack is going to be treated by a doctor before someone with a broken finger or a cut on their leg. Yes, the broken finger might need to be set. It might need to be treated or even surgically repaired. Yes, the cut may need stitches. So it's not unimportant, but the heart attack or the gunshot wound may be immediately life-threatening. So those things are first in line to be treated, right? So you triage. You determine levels of urgency and importance. It helps set priorities, right? Affirming the deity of Christ, for example, is more important than whether or not I think vaccines should be mandated. This doesn't mean lower levels of importance are unimportant. It just means that faithful Christians who affirm the authority of the Word of God can arrive at different opinions without threatening our unity on the things that really matter. Paul tells us in verse 6 of Romans 14 that whether one observes a special day or eats all foods or abstains from some foods, the important thing is honoring and giving thanks to God. We see in this passage a fundamental truth truth that we must grasp. Our life is not our own to live as we please. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Because of this truth, God is the judge in both life and death. God accepts each believer, how? On the basis of God's sacrifice of Jesus, His Son. Right? In this, he's able to, over time and continually, change us into his image. Regardless of our background, regardless of our maturity in Christ, each of us is accountable to God on these disputable matters. Verse 10 of uh, Romans 14, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So it's the church's job to stand firmly against sin that is expressly forbidden in Scripture, like adultery, like homosexual behavior, like lying, cheating, murder, theft, 
That's not an, uh, that's not an exhaustive list. That's just a, a few examples. But the Apostle Paul seems to imply here that the church or the individual believer in Christ in relationship with other shouldn't create additional rules and regulations and allow those truths to have equal authority with God's word. And we are prone to that. We are kind of naturally prone to that. Our way is the best way. My way or the highway. Many times, Christians base their moral judgments on opinion, personal dislikes, or cultural bias rather than on the Word of God. When they do this, they show that their own faith is weak. They do not think that God is powerful enough to guide His children. When we stand before God and give a personal account of our life, we won't be worried about what our Christian neighbor has done. Have you thought about it this way? Have you ever thought about it this way? Let's do a little application from current events, okay? If you really believe, and I'm sure there are some here who believe this, if you really believe that out of love for your neighbor and protection for yourself, you should get a COVID vaccination, but you have family or friends or church family that won't get the vaccine, can you trust God with that? Can you pray and ask God to change their minds? Or maybe change your mind if you're wrong. As the quote we just read said, do we think God is powerful enough to guide his children? Or the flip side. Now on television we call this equal time. If you really believe that, and I know there's people here that do, for personal, medical, or even for Christian liberty or for some other reasons, you shouldn't get the COVID vaccine. And you don't believe you should be forced to. But you have friends or family or church family who insist you must. Can you trust God with that? Can you seek God to change their minds? Or maybe change your mind if you're wrong? This brings out another element of this discussion, and this applies to COVID, but again, it applies to any other disputable matter. Who among us is an epidemiologist? Okay. We have nurses in our midst. I see Chris. I don't see Margo here today. And we've had doctors, but most of us aren't that. Who's an expert in statistical analysis? Okay. Now, I can certainly read, and I do read widely. I'm not stupid. No amens to that. And I can interpret information on disputable matters. I don't think you need to be an expert to have an informed opinion. Okay? Add to that, one of our challenges with some issues is that you have dueling experts. Even the experts can't agree. And all an expert is anyway is a former spurt. That's just a joke, okay? In deciding a question and depending on an issue, I do sometimes give more weight in a question to someone who's more of an expert than I am. So I'm not dismissing experts entirely here, okay? Because I also recognize that there are things that I don't understand and, or don't understand fully, okay? So let's all have what one writer called epistemic humility, okay? That's a big fancy word. We're going to talk about it here. Even though we sometimes think it's true, the truth is everything is not obvious. We tend to think that there are simple answers to life's most complex questions. We assume that solving major problems, whether in predicting human behavior or in economics or in government policy, is a matter of common sense. We believe everything is obvious, but most solutions to complex problems are anything but 
obvious. And if they are obvious, it's only because we have the advantage of hindsight to see what worked. Surely, some ideas are better than other ideas, okay? I have my own opinions, and I hold some of these opinions pretty strongly. I hope they're well-informed opinions, but I'm not a doctor, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not an expert in statistics. So even though I have strong opinions, I don't want to oppose, impose those opinions on other people about things that I consider to be disputable matters. I want to have in myself epistemic humility. Now that's from the study of knowledge. Epistemology is the word, okay? And it's basically how we know what we know. It's just a fancy way of saying, let's be aware of what we truly know and of all the things we don't really know. Admit that our knowledge is limited. And when we do that, it should make us gracious towards our brothers and sisters in Christ who, after all, want the same things we want. Can we give everybody that benefit of the doubt? Let's again use our modern-day questions about COVID and the lens through which we apply Romans 14. And let's also remember, as we talk about these things, they can apply to many other issues. This is just the big one that's in front of everybody's mind these days. Anyone here want to see people get sick with COVID? Anyone here want to see people hospitalized or die of COVID? Of course not. I didn't think so. So if no one wants to see these things happen, then our culture's battle over these things is a disputable matter. It's an opinion. The question becomes not, don't you care if people die, but what's the best way out of this mess? That's where we disagree. You may share my opinion or not. And even if I hold my opinion very strongly, I am determined before God not to do what Paul wrote about here and what the Romans were apparently inclined to do because Paul felt the need to address it in this letter. I don't want to despise you. I don't want to look down on you. I don't want to pass judgment on you. Your stance is between you and God, and we may be able to dialogue about it, and I hope that if we do talk about it, we can do that with love and respect for one another, but God is your judge, not me. And again, it doesn't mean there is nothing where judgment is necessary. You know, we have a church discipline procedure, right? And that requires the elders to make a judgment about whether or not someone is, uh, their attitude or their behavior is sinful. And so we respond accordingly. There's an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. So there's an example about how we're talking about a different way we deal with people inside the fellowship than we deal with the rest of the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So in such instances, we as believers, the elders, are to be guided by the Word of God. And I hope everyone here would agree that there are attitudes, there are behaviors that are clearly defined in Scripture as sin. But dietary scruples, special days, as in Romans 14, or COVID questions in our day, 
are either not defined clearly as sinful or Scripture is just silent about them. It doesn't address it. So we have to, when Scripture is silent about something, we have to rely on the principles that God gives us in Scripture. One key element in this passage is what we do in honor of God. In verse 5 and 6 of Romans 14, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So Paul seems to be saying something about conviction here. He writes to the Roman Christians, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Why? Because we are to do all things as unto the Lord. He wrote to the Colossians, whatever you do, in word or deed, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So Paul writes, be fully convinced. Do what you do in word or deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. You'd better not do or say anything unless you can do it in the name of the Lord. It's clear from even any limited understanding of Scripture that disunity has always been a problem among God's people. We can go all the way back to the Old Testament and see civil wars. We can see family feuds among God's chosen people. Almost every local church that's mentioned in the New Testament had some sort of division to deal with. The Corinthians were divided over human leaders and some were even suing each other. The church in Galatia were biting and devouring. That's the words Paul uses. They were biting and devouring each other, according to Paul. The Ephesian and Colossian churches were also reminded by Paul of the importance of Christian unity. In Philippi, two women in the church were fighting, and as a result, the church was in danger of splitting. So as Ecclesiastes tells us, there's nothing new under the sun. Sinners are going to argue and dispute and divide. But because we're sinners, we have need to remember some things. We're sinners, we're proud, and we read in Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is meant to be our standard state of being as brothers and sisters in Christ. There's another downside to division. We were discussing this very issue in the elders meeting this past Tuesday when I mentioned to the elders that this was my sermon theme this week. And John noted what a distraction that these kinds of disputes are. They're distractions from the discipling of believers. They're distractions from the spreading of the good news. So how can we make time to battle and dispute over things like this when there's so much more to be done? You might say, well, Bill, you said that TCF's done pretty well not allowing these kinds of things to divide us. And yes, I do think we have done well. And then the question would be, then why preach such a message today? Because it's in the Word. And the Word is living and active and it penetrates hearts. Because despite the fact that I do, in fact, believe we've done well, and I believe God is pleased so far with our response as a fellowship to these, this current source of disunity and there'll be something else, that doesn't mean we're invulnerable. And that doesn't mean that we can't succumb to strife or division. It's happening 
It's happening in churches. If it's not COVID now, it'll be something else later. And in keeping with the application, okay, can we consider this message a vaccine against disunity in our church? Let's think of it this way. The Romans 14 vaccine. Maybe I should have titled the message that. Not the Pfizer vaccine, but the Romans 14 vaccine provides us with spiritual antibodies. So if division from our brothers and sisters tries to break into our hearts, those antibodies will already be there in place. They will recognize that as division and ungodly judgment, and they will fight that attitude to the death. They will kill it. That's what antibodies do, right? They kill infections. And they won't allow that infection to spread in us or others. So let's think of Romans 14 as a vaccination against disunity and against, uh, guarding against doubtful issues and disputable matters. Let's not be divided and weak because we don't allow Jesus to be Lord. In John 21, we see the story of Jesus restoring Peter to his place as an apostle. And Peter was told, follow me by Jesus. So Peter began to follow Jesus. And then he noticed the apostle John that was walking behind him. And Peter said, after all the things Jesus had said, Peter said, what about him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Jesus said, John, isn't your concern, dear Peter. You just follow me. Don't worry about what I'm going to do with him. You just follow me. So when we wrestle with our brothers and sisters over disputable matters, maybe the Lord would say something similar to us. Maybe he'd say, what's that to you? That's between him or her and me. As for you, follow me. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would inoculate us against division and disunity in this fellowship so we can continue to do the work you've given us to do, to follow you with our whole hearts, to disciple believers, to evangelize here and around the world through our missionaries, Father. We pray that we wouldn't be distracted from the work you've given us to do by things that are disputable or doubtful or just opinions, Father. We pray that you'd help us to identify those things that are, in fact, falling into that category. And, Father, to stand firm in those core issues that we must believe and that if forced to, we must even divide over. But, Father, there are so many things that aren't those core issues. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to not only discern those, but to stand firm with our brothers and sisters, even when we disagree. Help us, Father God, to have a peaceful spirit in this church and help us, Heavenly Father, to know that as the world watches us, you will use that to draw people to yourself. We thank you now, Father, for your word, and we thank you for helping you apply it to our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.